0: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Jeff Grammer with the Albuquerque Journal, and you are listening to episode 21 now of the Talking Grammar podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in, however you're doing it, whatever link you found to get to this podcast. I certainly appreciate you doing so. Getting good feedback now that we got the podcast up and running again for the 2019-2020 college basketball season. Again, for those that don't know, I cover the Lobo basketball team for the Albuquerque Journal, and this podcast is primarily focused on the Lobo basketball team. The conversation I had this week, a long one. I really thought it'd be about a half hour, and I ended up recording more than an hour with my guest this week, who is Craig Snow, the former Lobo assistant who went on for five years to be the head coach and then athletic director at New Mexico Highlands, and came back just this offseason to the new title of special assistant to the head coach, uh, that being Paul Weir. And Paul and Craig are friends. They became friends in the profession through the years and uh, did a lot of collaborating with each other. Craig Snow actually talks about, he actually credits Paul for, for the success he had at New Mexico Highlands as a coach, kind of teaching him how to implement a style that Paul, since he got the UNM job, talked about wanting to implement with the Lobos, but hasn't frankly had the success that, that Craig was able to have at the D2 level at New Mexico Highlands last year when they went to the NCAA Division II tournament. So... I talked to Craig a little bit about that, what brought him back to Albuquerque and to the University of New Mexico. We talk about his pre coaching days when he was at Evansville and played for the Purple Aces. As I record this, um I I interviewed him actually on Tuesday afternoon, and as I record this now, the uh this intro, his Evansville Purple Aces already pulled off the upset later the later on Tuesday night, November twelfth, and uh beat number one Kentucky. So the timing was good. Uh I knew it was coming, I figured Figured once Evansville beat Kentucky, people might want to hear from one of their old stars from yesteryear, Craig Snow. And uh, I do think Lobo fans are going to really appreciate some of the uh, the context Craig puts into what they're doing on the court and how they're trying to maximize, as is a word he uses quite a bit, maximize the offensive talents of a lot of players on this team. And and that's pretty much what his job is. He does an awful lot of offensive-specific um, Training, evaluating, analytics, and stuff like that. So he's he's kind of the offensive guy on the staff. Uh, Dan McHale, the the new assistant coach, is kind of the defensive guy. Um, everybody else does a little bit of everything, and and they kind of feed what they learn and what they're studying into Paul Weir's head, and uh, then the the finished product is hopefully in their mind um, a good one that that fans get to see on the court. So far, so good for the Lobos. They won two games. Now, one of them was against a Division II Eastern New Mexico team last Wednesday. Comfortable win. Their next win against the Cal State Northridge team that was without its best player. But, again, comfortable win. That's what the Lobos are supposed to do. And, frankly, in a lot of – it's been a long time since the Lobos beat a team that was decent um, like Cal State Northridge is, um, with or without their best player. That's an okay team. And it's been a long time since the Lobos – Beat a team like that and did it comfortably and didn't didn't sort of play down to the competition and uh, have lulls that allowed the other team to get back into it. This was a, a wire-to-wire kind of win. I I guess technically it wasn't wire-to-wire. I shouldn't say that. SeaSun um, did have the lead for a little bit in the first half. But point being, this was a comfortable win for the Lobos, and fans are starting to see uh, why this year's team has so much offensive potential. And that offensive potential is what Craig Snow is basically spending his days doing, trying to figure out how to get the most out of that offensive potential. There's a lot of ball-dominant guards on this team, and how do you play them together and keep everyone happy? We talk a little bit about that. We talk about his role at New Mexico Highlands. I, I really enjoyed him him delving into some of the some of the things he learned as a, a Division II head coach and athletic director, what brought him back to the Division I coaching level, and uh, then I also pick his brain a little bit about analytics. I'm I'm into analytics. He's a, a very, um, very much in analytics at a much higher level than I am, of course. But uh, without further ado, let's do this. Let's get into this conversation I had with Craig Snow, the special assistant to the head coach of the UNM Lobo basketball team. Before the New Mexico days was Evansville, and you were, your four years coincided with. Uh, Jerome, at Bradley, and yeah. you uh, you had yourself a, a pretty good little career, and he had himself a pretty
1: good little career. Do you remember playing against him? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, uh, it's kind of cool, like, whenever Steve hired hired me here the first time, you know, obviously, he had been at Missouri, South. I think it was Southwest Missouri State at the time, um, and he had recruited me out of high school, so it was um, a lot of familiarity there, and uh, we actually talked about the Missouri Valley, because he, he went to the Sweet 16, um, was the year that we won the, the whole league, and okay. we, were, we were an at-large team into the NCAA tournament. I think we were an 11 seed, played in New Orleans, lost to Kansas. But that was the year um, he he went to the Sweet 16, and um, so we kind of had a history there talking about those the old Valley years. And that, that was was year the Valley I think had three we had three teams in Evansville, Creighton, okay. and this uh, had a and Steve's team, um, sleeves, and then Jerome sleeves, jerseys he, with sleeves. Yeah, we wore the sleeves, and and you know Jerome was at Bradley, who's always a tough, hard-nosed defensive team, and. He had a, a really good career there, especially his senior year. I think his senior year he averaged 17 and was all-conference. He was um, a player of the year when he He was developed. a player of the year, senior year. Now, we never really matched up on the court as much. but Because um, he was great. No, it had nothing to do with fear. <laughs> it, was, it was more of like positional stuff. But we had some great games. We actually had a game at – we t- we've talked about it recently at Evansville. It was like we were down like 24 early in the second half and came back and won in overtime. And he talks about the practices that, that coincided with that um, after the fact, but he was a great player. And, and even like Alan Huss, who was here yeah. um, previously, like in between, um, we all intersected the same years. So like we were all there the exact same four years in Missouri Valley. Um, you know, Jerome, Bradley, Alan, Creighton and, and me at Evansville. So a lot of common, common threads there. All right. I will put all three of you on, on the, uh, comparison table then your best year,
0: all, all three, of you, the, the best year in the Valley, who was the best player in the three of you?
1: For the best year, I think I would have to probably say Jerome's senior year. Was the best of the three of you. Probably the best of the three of us. Right. So I think he averaged 18, was defensive player of the year. Um, I would I would probably have to give him the nod on the best single year for sure. And your senior year? My senior year, I was preseason player of the year. Um, coming off of junior season. Um, was I your averaged, junior year your better year then? Uh, a lot of people would say my sophomore year was my best okay. year. Um, I, I was a four-year starter, so I played all four years and had a good career. Um, sophomore years from an efficiency standpoint, I want to say it was around 60% from the field and and made threes and averaged probably like 12 or 13 junior year. The individual stats stepped up a little bit. I was first team all conference and I don't know what I averaged, but probably in the 16 range. And then senior year had a little bit of a dip, really battled through some injuries. I had a a pretty significant injury halfway through my junior season. Um, that kind of set me back a little bit. I never really feel like I ever recovered from that as a player, even, even post-college. So, um, I would have to give the nod to Jerome but but you know it was a great four years for me and, and played for a great coach and Jim Cruz who yeah. who like Steve, you know, also had Indiana ties. So um that's kinda of my upbringing in basketball. And you did play overseas a little bit, I know Jerome did as well. Um, what what was it like playing overseas? What did
0: you what's your big thing? Like <laughs> you know, overseas? for
1: me it was more of like uh it was like a cup of coffee, like it was like travel, you okay. know. I, it was a really good experience. It was a, a tough time. Like I, I I was over there in like oh one right after nine eleven happened. All right. For three years and it was really formative for me just in terms of seeing the world I I grew up in a small town I went to college 45 minutes away I was kind of uh, I don't want to say sheltered but I certainly hadn't really seen much of the world and to be able to uh to go to Europe and play basketball was was a neat experience but it didn't take me long to realize that um you know I wasn't going to make it into the the leagues where you can really have financial security long term and it was like you know I needed to make a move from a career standpoint.
0: What about, uh, you know, post-basketball, then? What what brought you,
1: you know, why are you in New Mexico? It's a great question. I, I, I've been asked that so many times. It was really just uh, my wife and I, you know, we were looking for places to go. And I, I, I had always originally intended to, to go to law school. Like, I always thought, oh, okay. I, always thought I was going to be in politics or do something. Um, along those lines, actually, my first job was a, a congressional aide for a U.S. congressman in Illinois. Okay. Um, but we moved here thinking I—I I was thinking kind of like you know I'm going to go to UNM law school and things will work out. And and my wife actually ended up getting her PhD from UNM, um, but I didn't get accepted, so I had to I had to like switch courses real quick you know, from the law school. So I I went around I I applied for high school coaching jobs and um, I applied at a couple that had openings and I was just really got lucky at Bosky School who. Um, at the time, I was looking for a coach, and they were really, it was like a brand new program, yeah. um, and I was really young at the time, I was probably 25, yeah. um, when I got my first head high school coaching job, and um, I'm really lucky they, they believed in me, you know, from, from the standpoint of uh, giving me an opportunity, because I went from that to being the AD there also, to got really kind of lucky in a break whenever Steve got the UNM job, because I had someone here that I had connected with, so... Um, it's well, kind of interesting. Was it recruits? I mean, or is it through the south, well, it, south, it, west, sorry, southwest Missouri State? Um, well, Stephen recruited me in high school. His dad actually was funny. I was in here one day at practice, and Sam was uh, – Sam's great, by the way. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's an unbelievable person. Um, Sam was joking around with me. He's like, well, you're from Mount Carmel. Yeah, I remember, you know, they used to have a pretty good player. I went to see him play in high school. I think his last name was Snow. I mean, I kind of was like ready. I was kind of just going along with him, like waiting for him to say something, kind of, you know, like he was kind of like a piece of work. or that He had an attitude. Um, but he, he didn't I had, no, he, had, he didn't know that was me at the time. So yeah. it was like a really good intro. Um, but uh, no, and it, it really came down to, you know, coaching high school, being here at that time. Um, both Stephen Noodles kind of, you know, watched me coach their kids in AAU from a standpoint yep. of uh, having them. And I think just be, having that relationship and close bond was able to, you know, be able to get on staff the first time.
0: What was it like being on staff here? What, uh, what's your big takeaway from your first stint at UNM?
1: Well, the first time, it, it's been really cool for me to come back the second time because I feel like um, I'm, I'm just much more aware. Like, when I came in the first time, there was probably a lot of, like, naive sure. what being a college coach is. I can remember, you know, early on saying, I can't wait for the games, and Ryan Miller looking at me like I was crazy. Like, what do you mean? Like, games are mis- misery, you know, because <laughs> it's, it, it's so tight. But um it's just I'm just a lot more aware of like college basketball and um, kind of the the business aspect of it but also um, just being around that that team at that time you know it's fortunate to just be around so much we just winning like we won and yeah. um, we had great players um, and really having an remind, remind me and the people listening the years you were here um, I, was, I was here from 2011 to 2014 okay 11. so that 11. was I think uh, 20 I think it was 29 and seven. Followed by like twenty nine and six by twenty seven and yeah. seven something three like NCAA that. Three NCAA tournaments, three Mountain West tournament titles. Um, I think two regular season titles, one yeah. shared. Um, really good players and, and really good coaches. I don't know if one was shared. Uh, there was maybe one that was shared. Do you think they were both outright? I thought maybe one was shared. Th- in the, in the, oh well, in there the, might have been a regular right, season. Two,
0: yeah, I thought you said two, two titles and one shared. The last one wasn't shared. I'm not trying to bring up one three one. I mean, oh, bad, oh, bad memories yeah, or anything. We, but we
1: lost that last game. I mean, I can still, <laughs> I still couldn't watch that. You know, like, have you I, not
0: watched that game? I
1: couldn't watch it from. A, I mean, I, I could watch it obviously. I mean, we watched it after the game because sure. we had to prepare for them coming into the next week. Oh, and, that's right. And you guys did beat. Um, then we beat game. them. But you know, what's, what's amazing know what about what I'm referencing. About but it is the San Diego What's amazing State. about coaching, though, is like the the one three one that the shot we ended up with at the end of the San Diego State game was a Kindle 3 that he missed. Yeah. And the shot that we ended up with at the end of the game in the, in the Mountain West tournament was a Kindle 3 that he made. Yeah, like, and that was I mean, the only difference. And and one goes in, one doesn't. Um, You know, that was an unbelievable environment there. Thames got going. I mean, the, we, we were really – we had a lot of momentum going into that into 8-minute that well, there, media. There is obviously mixed uh, – Mixed opinions of me is the the guy covering you guys,
0: either homer or hater. You know, people think I'm I'm one of these. You guys were clearly the better team that year, and Cam Beristain was the best player in the league that year. Um, you give the player of the year to the team that wins it all, and San Diego State won it all that year. But uh, you you play that game ten times. You played it a week later, and you guys won. You you play that game ten times, and uh, I think you guys win seven or eight of them. Um, I thought you guys were the better team that year, but. That, that's why basketball... That's why you and, play the game. Yeah, that's why you play, play, the, play game. the game. That's the classic, why you play the game kind of thing. Um, what what led to your leaving UNM?
1: For, it, just opportunity, really. Like, you know, I, I was really, you know, when when you're in a successful organization like we were at the time, like, there's upward mobility. And, yeah. and you, uh, you know, I was hired in the video spot, and, and we had a successful season, and after that, um, I was able to get promoted into the operation spot and then and then Steve left for ucla and those you know that day i mean I was talking with him like he he basically said, "I want you to come with me um and as the process kind of unfolded, sitting down with Craig he offered me a, another promotion to stay here um to assistant to assistant so you know for, for, so to be in this really I was hired in August and less than twenty four months later i've 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 kind of channeled through two spots um you know, I felt really good about that. And so staying here was, was really, like for me, it felt like a really good opportunity. And, yeah. and um, staying here. And, and that was this, that first year, the, 13, that was the first 14th season. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you go video to ops to assistant. In, in the span of really less than two calendar years but that's what everyone hopes for when they get into. it doesn't happen very or, often yeah it doesn't happen very often i mean it, you can look at just the history of those positions it's just really it's really difficult um because it's so it's such a competitive yeah. business from a the recruiting standpoint and others so i was i was really fortunate that that um you know i had that opportunity and and then i've always wanted to be a head coach you know yeah. and and i've always kind of had an affinity for the state of new mexico ever since we moved here so it's it was an opportunity to get promoted within and then and then an opportunity to be a head college coach here presented itself. And at the time, I felt like it was really the the, the right move. I, I thought that you know, like any new head coach comes in, you know, they probably at some point will want to kind of have their own staff. Sure. And um, I didn't know how much more I could climb the climb here. Uh, it felt more like maybe this is an opportunity for me to go be a head coach, run my program, build a program. That's what I've always wanted to do. Um, you know, Coach Neal supported that. He helped me get the job. And
0: your wife was already done with her PhD. My practice.
1: wife had finished her PhD. She was working at UNM. I mean, it, you know, she's very really, was really on board with us mm-hmm. with us kind of making that transition. It was also a time from just a family perspective. Like, um, you know, Adeline was at that time. She was five. Okay. Beckett was, you know, brand you know, one and a half. Mm-hmm. I think so. Just making that move with young kids to to be able to to run a program and to be able to be around them a little bit more, because um, this this lifestyle is really difficult, especially yeah. on, on family and kids. So,
0: well, you have a rare path in that you've been in New Mexico the whole time. You, you are back at one you know the same spot that you got into the assistant side of things. Obviously, um, yeah, usually the, the moves in this business are you know three states away, cross country or, or something. They like that. are,
1: and I, I've been fortunate with that. And yeah. you know the move back was you know it's been it hasn't necessarily been in the works but but paul and i have been talking for a long long time and um have developed a really good relationship with him and uh just as the conversations kind of have unfolded throughout the years this was just an opportunity that you know i felt like um was good to get the family back into albuquerque and um, and just to, to see what we could do with this team. Well, I don't know how far down the road you guys got on this, but, I mean, there, when he became head coach at New Mexico
0: State, there was at least some conversations about, is it the right time for you to get back into yeah, the Yeah, I, right. I mean, we talked pretty seriously.
1: I mean, there was pretty serious talks about, um, I mean, I went down there and talked to him a couple times, and um, and we just always stayed close yeah. through, throughout throughout the, the year. And, you know, our relationship's kind of funny because it's mostly just centered around business, you know. Yeah. There's not a lot of, like, hey, how's, how's how the kid's doing, yeah. you know, it's, it's it's always been about really. You guys are business. friends, but it's it's like it's work very friends. heavy work friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it's about basketball and it's about um, the business and it's about how can we get better and um, there's a lot of idea sharing and it, it, it's it's been really um, it's been a really good relationship for me. I mean I, I credit um, our championship last year to the style of play that he brought here and we were just able to implement it in a conference and and with with different kind of kids where it was incredibly successful you guys are doing the same stuff we were doing the exact same stuff defensively but even maybe even more so i mean we were i want to say i mean we were forcing 20 turnovers a game we were averaging nearly 90 a game we were shooting a ton of threes um it was like a perfect storm for us that we we stole a lot from the way he coached it you know and it was an idea that Whenever I went to Highlands the first time, I I mean, I always talked about like uh, this with Brandon, you know, um, that I wanted to be like the Cincinnati of the Armac. Like that was our idea. We want to be a full court pressure. Like we were just miserable to play. It took me until Paul showed me how to coach it to be able to do it, if that makes sense. So like like we we spent I came down here and spent a lot of time at practice, watched how they implemented it, watched every single game and uh, had a team that kind of bought into it. Um, but without that relationship, there's no way we get to where we were. Your first hire at New Mexico Highlands, though, was Brandon Mason. What was, what was that like, uh, having
0: him around for the first season?
1: It was great. I mean, Brandon's an unbelievable person, um, and communicator, and, uh, I think we had been on staff together here for two years, um, and developed a good relationship, and I think, uh, it was just a good opportunity for him just to, like, you know, just for the first time, go out and recruit, um. And which is he's unbelievably talented at. And, and I don't want to pigeonhole the guy. Um, I think a lot of assistants get pigeonholed as recruiters, and
0: and I think Brandon gets a lot of credit for a lot of recruiting that goes on here, um, which which is good. Credit's good. Um, but I don't want to pigeonhole the guy. But but he is a hell of a recruiter,
1: isn't he? No, it's just communicator. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's a bigger than just recruiting as well. I think he communicates well with the players we have on the team. I think he communicates well with with. Uh, the coaching staff. I think he communicates well with boosters. I mean, he communicates all the way around. Um, but he also has a good feel for the game. I mean, he played for a really good coach. I um, great coach, Hall of Fame coach, yeah. um, and Coach Henson, who thinks the world of him. Um, and I, I thought at that time it was like it was just a no-brainer for me. And it didn't take long for New Mexico State to to call it. He was yeah. with me one year, and um, and then Paul was on. Paul and Marv were on the phone with me, yeah. saying like, "Hey, we want to get Brandon back." So it was. I was really happy that he was able to kind of. At least jumpstart, you know, the the recruiting part and, and kind of cut teeth, um, you know, early on with 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 me at Highlands because he helped bring in a lot of talent. I mean, that second year, um, we were there. I mean, we we had like uh, brought in some really good players. Yeah. I, mean, I think our entire starting five is playing professionally still, and um, and some guys we probably see, shouldn't have. Had. I was gonna say you probably don't see that too often from the D two level where a starting
0: five is, is playing, you know what three years later now
1: yeah exactly
0: so, um i did tweet something last week when you guys played eastern and, and i i honestly didn't mean it as as a knock but i think some people took it as that um you guys played eastern in your season opener here at unm and out front you know the, their bus that they took up here was portalis rams um, <laughs> high school bus I can and, relate with that. and i well i tweeted a picture of it and just said that's the d2 line yeah. and i think some people thought i was taking a shot i, I genuinely didn't mean it as that and i I take shots on Twitter all the time. I'm following up to when I am taking a shot. Yeah. I didn't mean it's that. that. That is kind of the D2 life a little bit. It's a grind,
1: man. It's, it's tough, a right? Grind. I mean, I'll give you an idea. Yeah, give me because
0: you guys had road trips where you'd play back-to-back days in different cities up in the Armac, right? Well,
1: and, let me tell, just take you through the conference tournament last year. So we we're, we play at Colorado Pueblo and win in the last game of the season. And, like, the way the the RMAC um, tiebreaker had to be made by Colorado School of Minds. Like, it took – like, I had every – Formula possible, um, so only the minds had yeah. to know. It's like, only one school. Yeah, the they, they probably the had. Formula. They probably did the tiebreaker formula, just knowing that you know um, the coach at Highlands couldn't figure it out. Yeah. But I mean, the whole way back, we thought we were going to Denver. So I mean, our whole, whole plans were okay. We're going to go play Regis. We we had them beat. We we were up in the last two minutes. We lost the game. It was in the high nineties. Um, game where Mitchell had forty um, right out of Christmas break. We were thinking we're going to Regis. Well. By the time we get home from like the three-hour trip, it's, you're bus. going to St. George. Just
0: to be clear, to bus play, ride, right?
1: Bus ride. Yeah. You're going to St. George, Utah to play Dixie State. So that, that right in and of itself is like, oh, crap. Like one, That's one team we didn't want to play. I think they had won like 15 straight games. They, they were on an amazing win streak at the time. They had finished second in the league. So we, get, we end up tied for like fifth. We get bumped all the way down to seventh. And we have to go to Dixie State, the place no one wants to go play. Um we we're fortunate enough that uh, President Menor at the time allowed us to buy one-way flights, so we bought one-way flights to Vegas, um, and then rented three vans. So we had three. <laughs> but minivans. Even that, like, I mean, you're saying you're fortunate. Yeah, okay, that that helped a little bit. But it like, did. You're talking one-way flights to not where you're going. One-way flight to not the destination. We we get off in of Vegas. We're in three minivans. We we and this is like in a matter of days, right? Yeah. So like Sunday night, we we fly in. Um, late. We got in late. It was like around midnight in Vegas. Um, we get in the minivans. We drive the two hours to St. George, get to sleep, practice the next day, play and beat Dixie State on that next Tuesday. So now we're like, after the game, we're back at the hotel. Okay, well now we're driving to Denver from St. George, Utah. This was right around the time you might remember like, there was that avalanche on I-70 in between yeah, like Grand yeah. Junction. So this that's our route. And this is almost the exact same time that that's going on. So we in three minivans spend the whole next day we're up early. We get on the road. We're doing like the conference call for the Final Four from like um, gas stations in the, on, in the middle of Utah and, and uh, in Western Colorado. Yeah. Um, drive to Denver, um, end up beating um, Regis in the semis yeah. by a good amount. And then we beat um, Black Hills State um, in the championship. Get in the minivans the day after, drive back. We're talking now we're to a Sunday. Now we're point. to, like, Sunday, Then we've spanned through so We've, drove, we've, we've flown to St. George, Vegas, yeah. driven to St. George, driven to Denver, dro- drove back. We actually did our um, parade. Fortunately, a guy in a pickup truck came to me- meet us on the outside of Vegas because they did it. Like, the, the police were there, I and mean, we had a huge parade when we got back, um, and I was in the minivan behind. Uh, but the we players? drove three minivans through the entire trip. You drove three um, mini rental minivans. Rental minivans to the entire trip where we won the RVAC. And including the the three minivans were in the parade. They were in the parade. <laughs> it <laughs> was pretty cool. I mean it, but that was like you get accustomed to some of that, you know? Yeah. Like it doesn't bother me to and that's something that I do think it really helped me from uh like I don't like the first time I was here and maybe it was partly just I kind of grown up a Steve Walford fan and um, like he was a guy I was trying to emulate in the backyard. Like mm-hmm. I kind of had some maybe some stars in my eyes with, with what everything was and just level of basketball. Sorry. Like I see none of that now. Like and it just it helped me like from a humility standpoint and just from a understanding like how much impact we can have and what we can't and just just the the consistency and the work ethic that that I think it takes to be successful. And I think um, that's really helped my approach this second time around. So you couldn't get.
0: Plane tickets from at least Denver.
1: <laughs> no, we I thought about you it. You guys probably needed a better AD. I mean, at that time, well, yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, <laughs> I mean, thankfully, the AD was able to call the president at the time. Like, <laughs> I think, I think the, uh. Well, how long were you AD, though? Uh, two full basketball seasons. Okay. So, it was like October of uh, the years kind of run together but I had two full basketball seasons about is, two years is the admin side of college athletics still so something
0: you I mean you don't know or it, you, it's kind are of you back in coaching kind,
1: now what, what is, yeah I mean it's kind of presented itself and, and there's a lot of admin that happens with this particular position here but yeah. um I don't know if it's a skill set that I kind of like work my way into in positions or or what but um I enjoyed it I enjoyed yeah. the athletic director side I think What I missed was the interactions with the athletes, and I and I knew um, that that's something long term um, that I would miss. And you know, they gave me that opportunity at Highlands, and I I appreciate that. um, From a from a coaching standpoint, you know, just being able to be there with the guys and be a part of a team. Um, The administration stuff, I mean, there's a part of me that really enjoys it, um, but I just wasn't ready. Like I felt like. I was. I don't want to say. I don't want to offend anyone, but it, for me personally, it felt like I was like being put out the pasture, kind of. You know, yeah. like like uh, this. Everything was adult oriented. All my meetings were with boards, and they were. I was going to regents meetings and presidents council, and we were talking about like a lot uh, more handshakes when you yeah and handshakes like, and like we were, we were yeah exactly mm-hmm. we were we were talking about other things and um I just I, I could tell I was going to miss out. I wasn't ready to get away from the. The being on in a road locker room after a win and yeah. and um, being there whenever those good things happen, like I could just I could just tell for me I wasn't ready to to kind of slide away from that. Well,
0: I mean, I, as you were AD, I mean I, I enjoyed some you know brief conversations we had about
1: and we don't have to get into
0: all the details about it, but you know just even like the viability of football and college athletics and and some of that kind of stuff that that every now and then you and I would text back and forth about and it's it's interesting it does kind of open your eyes to not. Not just what you think is the right way to do certain things, but once you're in that position, you realize sometimes those notions you had about man, why do they do this? Like you, you just know that what they're doing is wrong. What what those people that are running the show is doing wrong. And then you get in that position, you realize sometimes there's a, there's a reason for a lot. There's of another it.
1: side to it. Yeah, absolutely, really is. absolutely right. Like you know, it was cool at Highlands because we were a place where like our football program made money. Yeah. When you look at it on the big picture, mm-hmm. you know of of, of having. 19 to 22 scholarships and bringing in 110 athletes in tuition dollars and 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 other revenue alone and then the the trying to figure out like do scholarships really cost money are they like a zero sum you know like how does how does that work into the accounting and obviously Um, that's all been a big topic around here now the last couple years I,
0: i think on the bigger picture the athletics department you know unm last year had 472 athletes and you know as far as scholarships goes i think it's just under 200 scholarships, full scholarships that UNM has. So there's still over 200. So athletics, when people say athletics makes money, it, it, a lot of times what they make money off of is tuitions and grants and stuff like that that come in from those athletes in those non-revenue sports um, at the D2 level. Some of that is at the football level and, and the basketball exactly level. Right. Exactly right. And, and people don't think of it in terms of that. Everyone here, I know at the D1 level, talks about sports like tennis, track, cross-country, swimming. Those don't make any money. Well, actually, it does for the university.
1: Exactly they're, right.
0: They're paying some tuition, and they're bringing money in, and people never really think about it like that because the bottom line of their tuition dollars isn't going to the athletic department. It's a weird, tricky kind of thing. Um, and that's why I think when, when sports were cut here at UNM recently, that was a big part of the discussion that I don't think ever probably got properly uh, you know, reported on. Um, but even discussed, I think, at the open meetings level at the regents meetings that kept going on. I, I don't think people ever really talked about the impact of the university. It was just looked at as an athletic department thing.
1: Yeah, and, and every, every place is different. And you know, and I N say is, that not good or yeah, bad. I'm just saying I don't think it ever actually yeah, Every back. place is different. For, for me, it was like at New Mexico Highlands in Las Vegas, New Mexico, athletics can be used as a great enrollment driver. Yeah. And, like, if, if, you, took every, if you took athletics away from Highlands, let's say, one out of every four kids on that campus would be gone. Um, so, like, the kids that are actually there, staying there, um, you're giving them opportunities. So, like, whenever I was leaving, we were under the talk of, like, how do we look to add the, the current offerings that we have? Yeah. And how can we find a funding model to where we know that this is going to make us money um, as a university? So, like, that's – but that's a, a school that size. And then you go to, like, schools, like, in the SEC, it's a totally different conversation. Um, the amount of money that's coming in based on the yeah. revenue generating sports and all the other things. That, that's a different conversation. And, like, if you model, if I would have wanted to model, like, New Mexico Highlands, let's say, after Alabama, that would have been a yeah. big mistake. Um, just like if Alabama tried to model it after me, it would have been a big mistake. So, like, all these models that are there, every place is unique and every place is different. And I think it's just that recognition is one thing that I, I kind of took away from it. And,. You know, there's a lot. Of, the one thing is about that position. There's a lot of tough decisions that have to be made, and yeah. um, and that's and that's something that uh, you know I, I learned through just through being in that in that seat, although at a at a at a small school division. many well, I, I think what I learned
0: um, through the past few years here is when people don't like what they read or, or don't like something that's going on, they scream for context. Well, what does other schools do? You know, what is it like at you know other Mountain West schools or other schools around the country? sometimes it doesn't matter because New Mexico is is where we are right now and and the state has its own issues it's facing as opposed to, you know, comparing University of New Mexico athletics to to Boise State athletics just isn't – like there's not real context there just to say this is what Boise State does because they're facing a whole different set of circumstances within their state legislature or within their state with finances and stuff like that. And and I do think that uh, it's worth remembering that it, it isn't the same everywhere, but there's reasons for that, and it's reasons that aren't just athletic sometimes. Yeah, it's just
1: how can we be successful? It's no different than, you know, I, I would just go back to, like, a, a team, that, the team that I had last year. Like, if we would have played conventional basketball, and, like, like, all the other schools in the RMAC do for the most part, it's half-court offense versus half-court defense, as opposed to us making it more like guerrilla warfare, like, we're going to pick you up and do things you don't like to do, uh, and we're going to try to take you out of all this other stuff, we're a 500 team. Like So, like, wh- whatever situation you might be in is trying to find that unique ingredient sure. and mixture that, that it takes to be successful. And it, that's the same in an athletic department as it is in a basketball team. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um,
0: you're back here now in this position. You're back at UNM, and I'm curious how much of what you learned at Highlands you're doing on a daily basis or, or you're presenting, you know, coaches' meetings or something like that that you think you can directly tie to your time at Highlands.
1: Well, I, one thing that I know there might be a bigger yeah, picture perspective. Yeah, I mean, abso- anything, absolutely but. right. But um, you know, it was it was it's been uh, a journey for sure. Like the last five years, like I mean, there's been definitely ups and downs. And um, I would say the biggest thing is just the from from a, the context of like offensive basketball, like the the philosophy of of uh, letting your guys play, yeah. like like, I mean, just letting, letting our, it's going to kind of mold itself, but like, there's no secret that, that we have a a talented group. And I know Paul's mentioned it numerous times in almost every press conference, maybe about the talented offensive pieces. Um, But just mixing that together and letting them, you know, letting their instincts take over. And I think he's done an amazing job of like just putting them in the right positions and, Um, and even though it's not perfect right now, it's, it's going at a pretty high rate from a team standpoint. I think it's as it, as it forms itself, you know, from a, from a philosophy standpoint, you know, my personal philosophy on offense is the more rules you put in, if you put something in, you have to take something away. So if if the more rules and, and, and things we put in, you're taking away their instincts to be who they are. And, and we have to sometimes get out of the way to let them take over. Um, what they can do and that I learned that through the last five years of being a head coach that the more I got involved the less they were involved And the like by the end of last year it felt like I wasn't even coaching like it was such a good like lesson for me in teaching like because like the more the teacher does their job the less they become involved as the subject matter increases right so like the idea of a teacher is you teach 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 by the end of it you're more of managing than anything else because you've you've taught it well enough. Yeah, and I think we, and I think Paul's a really good teacher. And I think as you you'll see our team develop, I think you'll see that to where there's a lot of natural stuff that takes place. So
0: I think the downside of that, or the risk,
1: maybe not the downside,
0: but the risk of that, is there are moments in games. Um, one of the knocks I get um, from from fans that that aren't bought into Paul and, and just aren't. First of all, some some Lobo fans will probably never be bought in. On a guy who came from New Mexico State, there's some level of that. <laughs> um, but just like there was with Craig and, and to a lesser extent Steve, there's always going to be people that constantly uh, write into the journal or, or whoever the beat writer is and have a problem with the coach doing this or that. One, I think, um, common criticism of Paul is letting the letting him play that you're talking about is well, he's not even doing anything. He's not coaching. Like you know, that's three possessions in a row and he didn't do anything to change it. Sometimes letting players play is letting them play through something as well. Mm-hmm. Um and and I I say the risk, not necessarily the downside, because when it works, it works great. But but the risk is you are going to have those moments sometimes where it looks pretty bad and it looks like the coach isn't doing anything. Um, what do you what do you say to that when when fans see that is that a, is that on you as an assistant to step in and tell Paul to do something that he was going to let him play through, or is that just is that I just mean, the I coach letting kids play has that risk?
1: I do think like there's so much stuff that goes on. During a basketball game, that is also in the the head coach's mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our job is to make sure that he's aware of what we might be seeing. Mm-hmm. So, if there's a situation where where, where um, let's say like in the, in the Northridge game where we're in a we're in a 21 possession stretch where we've scored 12 points, and you can just kind of feel there's not a lot of rhythm or not a, a lot of flow, or let's say defensively. Did you guys um, have a twenty one possession stretch with twelve points? Uh roughly. Okay. Yeah. Um kind of like midway through. But there was there was a lot that was going on. For context, that. for people that don't yeah understand yeah, that, was, that's it was, not good. That's not very good. <laughs> but when you when you take the seven then you look at the other fifty five possessions when there was about eighty seven points, that's that's good. Okay. So like trying to figure out those moments, right? Or trying to figure out um they've scored um five straight possessions or or we found like trying to just make sure because there's so much that goes on i mean he's trying to manage the entire game and there are times where you do want your guys to play through um and there are times where coaches sometimes yeah even when it looks bad even when it's a little rough you know like like early in the year there's certain times where you know there there are those high leverage moments there's no question where there has to be an intervention like there has to be something um but philosophically you know that's also a philosophy thing um and the older your team is, I think the more you can be in, in tune with that, sure. the younger your team is, depending on who's on the floor, you know, um, going back to the one through one game. I mean, the one through one game we, it was we, 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 we trusted a team on the floor at the time and they could be trusted throughout almost the entire year through yeah. those rough moments. Um, but, but why it, wouldn't you? They're all seniors? Absolutely all four, right. Years. I mean I think you look at it, and no matter what, there's always going to be hindsight. Um, sure. It's going to be outcome-based um in terms of like a lot of assessments on coaches it's going to be based on outcomes as opposed to based on what the bigger picture might be so i mean our job is to make to make coach aware of it you know like hey this is what we see is going on um and just make sure and then he it's up, ultimately up to him to make the decision um and then i think we just have as you gather more information on teams you become more aware of of what those tendencies might be and it's just making sure we're we're, we're doing our part on the deep dive so that whenever He's at the ten thousand foot level in the middle of a game and he's monitoring everything that we just make him aware of what we see going on. Well I would say too it's it's a lot easier to let let him play
0: and let your team play when when you have that basketball IQ that this team appears to have. There are guys on this on this year's team, Jaquan Lyle being um right at the top of the list. I I've I've talked about him and written about him a lot already, just two games in and I did put him on my preseason All Mountain West um ballot and and i think there were probably some people just sort of eye rolling that a little bit i mean come on he hasn't played in two years coming off an achilles um there's a reason it didn't work out for a guy like that in his previous place you know that's just the local beat writer probably being a little bit of a homer there but i mean the the guy plays basketball like like uh like a coach like i mean he sees things that i haven't seen here um that often and and uh, I'm curious your thoughts on a guy like Jaquan Lyle when it comes to the basketball IQ and having guys like him when you're letting the team play. It, you need guys like him that can kind of take over,
1: right? Yeah, and I, I think as... Not the, just individually. Yeah, you know, absolutely. No, you you, you, um, you know, there's one thing that I mentioned to, to Paul when I really first started watching Jaquan this summer into the fall. It's like there are guys that, that are trying to learn their position and there are guys that, that are trying to learn the whole game like so like he not only knows what his position does he knows the other four guys on the floor and he has a really good feel um for the proper basketball play and like and like you said you're not necessarily putting it in his hands to score you know you're running plays for him to make the right decision and i think as as he he's only going to get better you know, what rust, is, you know, and we have, you know, the, the challenging thing with three lead guards that have all right. spent some time, you know, out of the game for a year, um, is how long will that rust still be around, yeah. and those guys have done an amazing job of, of like, when in, in the games have started, like, there's just been, there's been small improvements, and actually, I would say some significant improvements from game to game, from, from scrimmage to scrimmage, whatever. Yeah, from um, and I think it's only going to grow. I, I think, you know, we, unfortunately it, it, it will only happen through gameplay, um, yeah. where those guys will get the speed and everything fully adjusted, but he's, he's been phenomenal. You know, I, I've known of Jaquan for a long time. I saw him play he as a, he's from Evansville. Um, he's, he knows like people from my, um, Tyra bus who went to Indiana. I mean, he, huh. he, he knows Tyra cause they were around the same age, um, and uh, know some different people. So, like, we, we kind of have a similar upbringing in the game, and um, he's, he's, he's phenomenal talent, and, um, you know, we're fortunate to have him. There are going to be some rough spots. I mean, I, I just
0: don't think, you know, I'm, I'm not putting my money on a guy being out for two years and coming back from an injury like that, not having some rough spots that are still going to be ahead at some point. Um, you, you hope those are, you know, confined to just a game or two or whatever it needs to be. But uh, the hope would be, from your guys' standpoint, that the rest of the team realizes that, and and he realizes that, that it's just a you know hopefully confined to a small amount of time. Like, but he's probably going to have a rough spot at some point. Can this team,
1: you know, get over that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think every team, That's every JJ calls yeah, well absolutely every team, every every player goes through a stretch where there's adversity, and you know, this guy does plays well or doesn't play well, and. You know things happen. I, I think that happens with every team. Um, the great teams are able to overcome it. The great teams are able to to win a game when one of their leading scores has an off night, or yeah. or one of their best players has an ankle injury. Like the best teams win those games. Um, the the good teams win some of them. The bad teams don't win any of them. Like we we're gonna if we're gonna be a great team, we're gonna have to be able to overcome those games. guys having an off night. Whatever it might be, it might be foul trouble. It might be. Uh, food poisoning. Anything can happen, and I think it's just this group has the has the depth and I think the maturity to be able to handle that. But until you're in it and until you're going through it, you never really know right. um, how how it will be handled. Um, I mean, hopefully everything's smooth sailing all year, but I just I know that's not going to be the case. I know there's going to be challenges here and there. Okay, big picture about this team. I mean, what do you what do you think about this roster and this team? I mean,
0: I don't want you to well feel freedom to, to make predictions on how far you guys will go. But, I mean, the, I would think you you see what everyone else sees, and that's the potential
1: to, to do what hasn't been done here in a few years. I I mean, if I'm a Lobo fan, I, I think there's hope.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, there's there's players out there. The guys can play. And they, yeah. and, they, and when the guys come on, they've played the best. Um, so I think, uh, you know, m- being as uh, optimistic as possible, I think if these guys can keep getting better, keep John as a team, keep playing the way they are, keep playing as hard as they are, try like coming in trying to learn, trying to get better. I, I think I think they can they can do what what we all want to do, which is to win a Mountain West title and go to the Subway Tournament yeah. and, and advance. So I think that's the 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 opportunity that's there, and I, I think it would be silly for me not to say that because I, I mean I, I see it and believe it every day. So um but you also realize how tough it is out of the mountain west an, to get that it's done it's now. so hard i mean you look at you it's look not at just what you have speak. to I mean, do that's, that's the truth yeah i mean really unless you have an absolutely exceptional non-conference and an exceptional conference you're gonna have to win three games in march yeah. and um i think everyone's aware of that i don't think that's a secret and um for us it's just trying to get better because i think that we do have the pieces to to be a, an incredibly good team and um you know, there's good there's good balance, and you know I think through the first two games, which is such a small sample to say, but to have six guys in double digits between 10 and a half and 15, like, and to have, you know, Vance Jackson not there yet, like, yeah. and, and he's going to be. Um, I mean that's a that's a team that I think can can do a lot of good things. I think
0: what's what's interesting about this team that you didn't see the previous
1: two years. You weren't here, I know, but
0: you you paid attention to what was going on. Two games in, you can tell there's an eight-man rotation. Um, nine, if you're going to Tavion the other night, I know there might be a ninth guy in. Paul has said he wants a ninth guy in. When Vontae gets here, he will probably be the ninth guy. With That doesn't mean opportunity's not there for those guys beyond the nine spots, but um, the rotation seems pretty set going into the season, which I think fans welcome. I think the uh, the roles of the players seem pretty set early, which I think people welcome and uh, you see a guy like a Keith McGee, and people wondered why he's not the point guard in a time when, you know, why in the world would Keith McGee not be getting point guard minutes if, if a guy like a Drew Drennan's leaving the team? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think you see it now. I mean, you, you, the guy's been great for two games, and if that's what Keith McGee is, the non-point guard is, well, maybe that's why, maybe you guys had an idea what you were
1: doing. Well, I, it's all <laughs> those, uh, they're all valid questions. I mean, I think that's one thing, like, We've had events here where, like, level fans have come in. I'm always blown away. Like, they ask good questions. I mean, it's about trying to put kids who the most successful. I mean, yeah. Keith McGee's one of the best finishers in college basketball. Like, when you watch him finish the basketball. And like, in, in just real general in, in terms? In general. You don't put great finishers at the point guard spot in general. In, well, no, exactly. Like, um, if people he's, think of if, Russell Russell back, if he's in the back. Yeah, but if he's constantly coming back to get the ball and to bring it up and initiate offense, it, it does limit the amount of times he can be out in front and transition. Yeah. And, um, you know, can he, does he have that skill set? Absolutely he has that skill set. But, you know, it's also trying to plug guys in to to where they can really shine and yeah. do what, what they do best. And, um, you know, when he's out in front and transition and he's running the floor and he's running the wing and he can shoot the three, he can, he can, he can finish at the rim. He's been, He's been really good, and I, I think just, you know, from where a coach is putting guys on the floor, they, they can, a lot of these guys have the versatility to play multiple spots, yeah. and it's trying to, to, to pin them into where we think they could be most successful.
0: You, uh, are you having, well, you know, we have, I'll, I'll obviously set this up when when I uh, save the podcast and, and all that stuff, and. And all that, but uh, I, I actually don't remember even right now what your title is. What, what is your title? Special assistant to the head coach. Right. You got the Dwight Shrew uh, Dwight Shrew title. For Dwight Shrew, Shrew title. Um, I know that's your. You know, <laughs> Those on the explanation. Um, in in your role right now, how much of it is is uh, is the coaching of Players and stuff like that. Obviously, not on the floor, but you're you're around them. The the, the NCAA rules are yeah. Well,
1: why don't you explain that? What what are you for me? My my pretty much entire um, stuff here is like really directing stuff towards coaches, which is really which is to Paul. I mean, and and he does Mm -hmm. so much in general, like uh, from a coaching standpoint, from recruit like all facets of the program. Like we all have responsibilities, Mm -hmm. but like the one thing I've learned quickly is if if you don't. If I'm supposed to have like, um, a play drawn up in, in uh, in our little software and I, it's not done when he expected, he'll just do it. Like, so he's a guy that does all facets. Yeah. Um, so most of my interactions are really with, with him. Um, but prior to the season, a lot of it was like administrative, like doing a lot of different things across, um, you know, the way to try to help like whatever we needed administrative wise. And, um just trying from an organizational standpoint with the program. I mean, obviously Ralph is ops. but And yeah. Ralph is ops as well. So, like, it's there's a you, lot. There's a little crossover there. There's a little there, crossover right? there. And then as the season's worn on, it's really me meeting with Coach primarily about um, what we're doing offensively. Okay. Um, and it's pretty pretty heavy in terms of, like, my conversations with him. And, um, you know, I, I don't really can't say that I've watched it, a defensive possession of ours um, pretty much unless it was on a film somewhere that okay. I happen to see. It's been pretty heavily focused on offensive stuff and organization. So just to be real clear then you guys have a very offensively gifted team,
0: a lot of good offensive players, and your role is to basically just you know play around with the offense. a real tough gig.
1: Uh, like, it, in some ways, it's <laughs> it's like it's more of like ideas. You know, I, I view every assistant position is our job to present ideas. Bro. I'm just what saying, having to fix the defense on an um, offensively
0: gifted team might be tougher work. It, it might,
1: just, it definitely would be harder work. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot. You're just to, kicking back the There's, there's, a, there's when, a lot of skill sets out here. Yeah. I'm just questioning what you even do then. Well, that's I mean, what I'm questioning. You got you got all whole, these great players. My first time here. My first time here. I mean, I prided myself on like post development and then after the fact, you know, I looked back on it and it was like you know, I feel like there were times when I helped Cam and Alex, but at the same time they helped themselves a lot too. Like, um so, you know, I, I always They're joke They both collected nice pictures. I always too. I always joked so. that like um you know my my post development was pretty much just passing them the ball in practice here and there. Yeah. But but they were good they were they were phenomenal and um you know in in some ways we have similar similar level players here that that um you know, it's just we need to put them in the right spots, and we need to keep them focused on on playing together. I mean, you do have some unique challenges in that. Like, Zane Martin is a guy who
0: obviously is offensively gifted, but just playing him strictly in a pure, you know, classic point guard sense isn't probably going to do him or the team a whole lot of good, but you're going to have to get minutes out of him at that. But that's not all you're going to do. When when people hear Zane Martin's playing point guard um, he's not the classic. It's not ever really going to be well, the classic yeah,
1: point guard. Well, yeah, you get into those classic um, kind of like definitions. There's not a whole lot of that anymore. Is right? know, I prefer to call them like primary ball handlers yeah. or like chief decision maker. You yeah. know, whatever we want to whatever we want to label them as. Sounds like, like title. Yeah, player, it's right? like what who has the ball in their hands, right? The most like LeBron James is not a point guard, yeah, but he but, has the ball in his hands an awful lot. Yeah, you know, so like. Who do, you, who do you put the ball, where do, we, where do we want the ball in their hands to make the proper decisions for us to score? Not necessarily for them to score, but for us as a team to score right. at a high rate. Um, so when you say point guard, it, it's, it, it could be labeled differently. You guys um, really only have one point guard on the team. If you want to go true to the de- de- definition of like what the, the old school point guard was, I would it's say J.J. Caldwell, Caldwell fits that to a T. Yeah.
0: Um, so part of your role, though, is, is look, Zane's really good off, this you know, even sides of the court and stuff like that, like Zane's really good in this position, but we can't always have him do that when we have four other guys on the team, so exactly. sometimes it's like figuring out where Zane might not be at you know his his hundred percent, but he doesn't have the biggest drop off in how it fits with everyone else on the team kind yeah. of stuff right it's
1: just and that's individual, some, some of that individual strengths molded into a team concept like yeah. and it's just what is there any ways we can do to maximize this and what what can we? What can we do to maximize our team? And where do, where do these guys fit together? Sometimes it's like playing guys together. Sometimes it's three-man, you know, a three-man yep. plus-minus. Or like, uh, uh, you know, we, we haven't really experimented too much with like a uh, uh, WAP and CB together. Yeah. Like things that you want to explore eventually. I can't imagine you'll do a whole lot of that. I mean, I, I get you guys will some.
0: How can't you try it? Because mm-hmm. it's so dangerous to have two really skilled offensive post players, as Lobo fans know, um, in recent years from your previous stint. But uh, I can't imagine just because, and I got into this on, on Twitter last night with some people, because of your lack of, of depth at that five spot, um, I can't imagine you'll do that a whole lot. But um, there's not a whole lot of teams that that are playing two posts right now.
1: There isn't. I mean, it's four, it.
0: four out, one in on almost every Mountain West team at this point.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's like... Um, you guys have size. It's like talking about like, uh, like an offensive skill set, right? It's like how many tools do you have in your toolbox? Yeah. You know, like it's just a tool, you know, it's just something that, um, if you have, if you have that capability to do it, is it a weapon that we can use at some point? Right. And it's like, how many weapons can we accumulate? How many weapons can we have? So that whenever we get into, you know, the the, the meaty part of our schedule in the conference and everything, whatever things are good, how many, how many weapons are we going to have to go to in different ways that we can go win basketball games? I think there's a real basic kind of question too, when it comes to, to coaching and basketball and that's,
0: are you the the team that takes it to the other team, or are you responding to what they do? I think what a lot of people who worry about your lack of depth at the five, really, um, and don't really understand that no team in the league has a whole lot of size, uh, not playable size. Uh, Utah State has a couple mm-hmm. seven-footers, but one's a freshman, one's a junior college guy. Probably neither one of them are going to play 20 minutes a game on a regular basis. Now, they have a star seven-footer when he gets healthy, too, but are... I think some people worry about what other teams are going to do to you in the post. If, if gets in foul trouble or, or WAP gets in foul trouble or something like that, as opposed to like thinking of it in terms of what you can do to them. Exactly. Um, And, and I guess that's the balancing act that all coaches have to deal with.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's the, that's where a lot of the intense study and knowing what we can do and like schematics on both ends of the ball, both both sides of the court, I guess I should say. Um, it's football season so yeah. that's both sides of exactly. the well. Um you know, just the schematics of what, what would work offensively and defensively would, would would be would be involved. But um overall I, I think it's just, you know, we've got we've got this group of guys. I mean just to make it so simple possible we've got this group of guys, how can we how can we mold this, this group to be the best yeah. possible team we can be. There's yeah. no mid
0: year free agent you're getting. The no, there's like no mid
1: year free agent we're getting. there's, no, there's no, you know, like we can get these guys a little bit better, but it's much more about like this is what we Mentioning have. Matching them together. This is what we have. Let's, let's
0: be as good as we can possibly. Be. On that front, I'll, I'll just reference one other thing. That's I think Leon Rice did a really good job, better than than most in this league. When you guys had Alex and Cam, two legitimate that either one of them could have been a Mountain West five. I know because they played together. One was a four, one was a five. Mm-hmm. But um, two legitimate post players. I thought Boise State did as good as anybody at making that matchup hurt UNM um, as best as they could. And uh, taking one of them out by by stretching Cam out consistently. Absolutely. And they had a four every year that would go for a career high on you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Broplay was one guy. Uh, was it Thomas Broplay? Oh, or, gosh, yeah. I think he, he ended up back. in a tournament yeah. or Bro something. Broplay. Bro who probably most people don't remember yeah. the name, but I think he had a 20 plus point. <laughs> yeah, game he did. You guys stretching the four. He did. Um, James Webb had a, a record nine yeah. year in the pit. Now, James Webb had talent, of course, but. He never hit three-pointers and stretched a, you guys. Duncan had a game, too. Duncan had a game against you guys. So they, they would stretch that four position out a lot. And um, that's the, the cat and mouse, or the, the give and take, that sometimes you take it to them, sometimes they take it to you, depending on matchups, mm-hmm. and, and you, sometimes you just have to live with it. Because how are you not playing them. Cameron Barristow and Alex Kirk together? Yeah,
1: the, the key on being big in those lineups is you have to dominate the block and dominate the backboard. Yeah. If you don't dominate the block, dominate the backboard. You can't be big. You need to you need to match up to their size, so, yeah. And like those, that was always kind of the uh, the 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 game within the game. Like they're going to hit threes, but we're going to get every single rebound, and we're going to score on the block left and right, yeah. and we're going to put you in, in, in difficult situations. So like, um, that's kind of like looking at it from that perspective. But yeah, I mean, every game you look at going into is like, okay, we can exploit this, but that's going to give them this. So like, can we can we overwhelm them here and? Uh, I mean that team was able to overwhelm a lot of people yeah. with their interior play. Yeah, you guys still did just fine in those years. Yeah. but
0: they they made it interesting because no, that those position, those were that games matchup,
1: that we knew going in. That Those spot. were games that were like you you lose sleep on going in because the scouts tough. They're well coached. They're going to put you your guys in tough spots. You know, fish out of water situations. Yeah. They're going to put put our big guys on the perimeter trying to guard. Um, we just have to double down on what we're doing on the other end and be sure that we you know, we send it in there as well. I thought possible. they were
0: as good as anybody at finding, finding at least a way to have a chance against your two big posts. They did a um, great in job. Those two years. Um, I have already taken up way more of your time than I thought I was going to, but I do want to touch on one other thing. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's new this year and, and it's cause we've kind of talked about it a little bit when I, I've seen your practices, but the three point line being extended teams are approaching it different ways. I saw Ken Palm, you know, Ken Pomeroy, who, who of course I follow his site all the time. Um, he tweeted something today about scoring is, is down a little bit, and somebody asked him, Is that, you know, it's only been a week, but is that, mm-hmm. can we count on that this year? And he said, Absolutely. And somebody else is asking him well, about the three point line. I'm curious the two philosophical approaches to handling an extended three point line from a defensive perspective. Um, I know you're the offensive guy here, you're focusing on offense, but you, you do that knowing how teams are going to defend it. What, what are your two thoughts on, on how to defend opposing teams going into a year with an extended three point line?
1: Um, and it's either packing. I mean, or it's or not it. percentage isn't going to go up, right? Okay, so like the percentages aren't going to go up when it moves back, unless right. I would assume that would be a, a, a an outlier if it did, right? But there's, it's not going to go up. So the question is, how much are the percentages going to go down to where you would adjust what you would do defensively? Yeah. I mean, if they're um, gonna go down drastically, obviously you're like, Great, let them absolutely if you're deconstructing right. from perspective, let them shoot. It. I personally think it's gonna affect marginal shooters much more than like really pure oh. true shooters. I think um, you know, the really good shooters are gonna still be to where it's a really good shot for them to take. I think really the good guys, shooters are
0: already doing two or three feet beyond the line anyway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. Maybe not all the time. Absolutely, but pretty and range isn't a problem. But it's the guys that are in that middle ground. You know, the guy that shoots thirty four percent with 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 uh, kind of shoddy mechanics. You know, like yep. is he going to shoot twenty nine now? Um, you know, it's it also affects you. I think from an offensive standpoint, the one thing we've noticed early on, and we haven't really been burned by it in games yet, is like the guy stepping out of bounds in a corner. Yeah, like just that extra extra distance. Yeah. Um, where guys are in the corner stepping out. So it affects you there too. I forget who said it in um
0: in the Mountain West uh, preseason media summit The you know, I talked to a bunch of the head coaches there about it and one of them said that that corner three is no longer a step into exactly you can't catch, it's, it's you like a catch ball in the
1: air, feet in the air yeah. or a
0: quick a quick step in. But yeah. you can't have there's, like there's a, not
1: really a step in three from the corner exactly. Anymore. You better be able to shoot right away. So you've noticed I've been dodging your question about how to do exactly. this defensively. Um so I, I think those are questions you have to kind of resolve. Yeah. Um, like, how much do you really think it's going to affect? And um, that's and that's kind of where I I personally think it's still a, a dangerous shot. It's still a high percentage shot. I think we've paid more attention to making sure we're taking good ones. Um, I mean, keep in mind I'm coming from a program that where I coached last year, where we probably took thirty a game, and we yeah. were like. I want to say we were 14th in the country in three-point field goals made per game, and um, so I, my team's been throwing it up there. Yeah. Um, be a little more cautious now, just with just that extra, that extra two or three percent or whatever it might be, um, just to make sure that um, you're taking good wins. And I think so far our team's taken really good shots. Well, the, the value um,
0: of getting three points on the shot as opposed to two points on the shot, there is a mathematical point where breaking point where the value isn't there anymore. Correct. If the percentage is a certain correct number. I don't know what the magic number is. Um, I I think you probably have an idea. It's probably what twenty nine or thirty or something like. Yeah, like,
1: I if, mean, if you can hit the if you can hit the three
0: at thirty three percent of the time, you're that's
1: about a point of possession. Yeah, you're, that's you know. what you
0: want. Um, to make it worth actually changing your defense, you're hoping that's at least three or four per- percentage points down from that. I would Yes, think. yeah. not just one percentage point. No, like, if
1: it if it, if you're giving up. Forty to thirty nine in a eighty possession game is is really not a big difference, but but thirty six to twenty nine or thirty six to thirty one when you can get that down, you know, it makes a bigger difference. So, I mean, I think it's something that will impact the game. Um, There's still a wait and see. I mean, is that? But I absolutely think. I mean, even like the data we have, like you know, the last two NITs have had it, but one those are pretty good teams playing at the end of their year. Granted, they only had a few days to practice on it. Um, I mean, so there's all these... So don't like, even changed, really? I mean, some teams might not have even changed what they were doing. No, I doubt. No, not, not at that point in the year, you don't You don't right. really change. As you go into the a new season now, so like, those teams, their percentages were down, but they also hadn't practiced on it all year. How does it impact you if you've sure. had summer to practice on it and fall to practice on it? I think it's still a wait-and-see approach. Well, um, I think what Lobo fans saw the last year that killed
0: Lobos, especially early in the year, was playing this pressure defense and extending the defense so much regardless of the three-point line, it was just extending that mm-hmm. defense so much. So much space was created for fast guards to get in the lane and and just be, you know, just kill the Lobos last year yes. when when fast guards could could use that space. If you extend your defense too much because of the three-point line, you're creating that space mm-hmm. and putting guys like Carlton Bragg and Corey Mandigo in jeopardy of getting fouls by guards just charging at them, you know, having yeah. a free run at the basket. So It's
1: also how teams get threes, right? Like, you just yeah. brought that up. So, like, sometimes it's not... It's not your help side. It's not being able to contain the ball, or they're getting threes off of dribble penetration kickouts, or yeah. some teams get threes off of post feed kickouts, or so. Like, what do you do on the post feed kickout? Do you not dig on the post, or do you front the post, Definitely. or do you? I mean, do, we don't let it go in there. Like, there's there's a lot that goes, ball screen stuff too. Brian Dutcher ball made screen absolutely about it. right. You think the, um, the pick and pop, the four. pick and pop is a, it's going to be a harder shot because they're moving into it as opposed to, like a catch and shoot, mm-hmm. a true catch and shoot three where the. The guards br- broken the defense down. They're coming to the paint at a stop, and boom, they hit a guy right on the money. Like that three—is that three really going to go down? Right. I don't know. But but Dush is probably right. Like that that pick and pop, where you're moving, and you probably not have to chase that four as much as you used to. I mean. Yeah, I mean those are all like also personnel-based questions. You know, like um, when you watch guys shoot, and,
0: and, and but this and, is kind of this is some of the stuff
1: you do. One hundred percent. I mean, from a uh, from a standpoint of like. Kin Palm, like, I I was into Kin Palm really early. Like, I'm talking 2008, like, at Bosky School. They did an experiential learning thing where each kid signed up for a week, and mine was titled March Madness. And I would have, like, 25 kids in there, and we would do the offensive efficiency based on Kin Palm before he really came on to the the major scene. Like, I've been. Before the Jeff Grammers of the world. Before Jeff Grammers had even, (laughs) like, heard, even thought of, like, like, points per possession and stuff. Like, um, the bask the basketball on paper book that Dean Oliver wrote. Like I mean, I read that and it kind of got me you know, into. No, I've never it. read that. You haven't. You probably should. I, I mean, I'm into it. So yeah. we did like predictors. Like so, my whole point. I even had like some parents say, "Hey, can I come to this?" Because like like we, I was telling them about like the best predictors for NCAA tournament success, yeah. which at the time was offensive efficiency. You know, at, at one point. It was like over the last ten Final Fours, like no team lower than four in offense had gotten to the the championship yeah. game, and no team lower than twelve in defense had won it. So like, like we were actually having having kids like their 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 homework was come up with a formula for you to, to accurately fill out the instant bracket, and then we'll, we'll we'll chart these and we'll figure yeah. it out. I mean, I was doing that whenever, um, you know, I was a, a young PE teacher at Bosky School. So <laughs> I've been into Ken Palm for a long time. Efficiency. I don't think people realize that. You let a team score 70 doesn't mean the defense was bad. That's absolutely right. There's a lot There's a lot that goes into it. In an 85-possession game? In an 85-possession game, that's pretty good.
0: Rule of thumb still one. I mean, one point per possession, keep them you under know, or go above? That's yeah, why I, I put that in the column the other night. Yeah, I mean, general I, rule I, in of thumb.
1: general, you know, in general, I think, I mean, we had a 76-possession game, I think, against uh, CSUN, so if we get a point of possession, we, we would have won um, that one. Yeah. Um, so I think you look at the points for possession. I think one is like a, a really simple way to look at it. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think above one offense, below one defense, I think is is fair to say it would be okay.
0: That's pretty much what I need. I did want to touch on that three-point line. Let me ask one last Ken Palm one. This is probably more for me than most people listening anyway, but what is your goal? You said efficiency 10 years ago. Is it, if there's one go-to, you know, analytic that's not on the the basic stat sheet that they hand out, you know, during timeouts or at the end of the game, what's one go-to stat right now that you think is a pretty big indicator? I know you go through about 500 of them, but like, what, what's a go-to stat? I'll tell you mine. The last couple of years when I'm trying to
1: um, predict
0: games or I look at teams, I, I was really big on free throw attempts mm-hmm. um, per shot. Just if a free, free throw it's, rate is the free throw rate, yeah. it, I I really like looking at that. If a team is going to foul you a lot. Against a team that's already drawn fouls a lot,
1: yep. you get a
0: whole lot of chances at the line. I, I liked the that team's chances, and that was one I went to a lot the last couple of years, and it seemed to be mostly successful. Obviously, some teams just don't foul, and, and they're still pretty good teams. Yeah. Um, but if, if you're fouling a lot, and the other team gets to the line a lot, which yes. UNM does, um, I, I liked the the team's chances in that. regard. Yeah. But anyway, what what what's your kind of what stat do you like looking at first if you're trying to decide
1: team A and team B are playing each other? Um. Probably effective field goal percentage. Okay. Um, I mean, there's really those four factors, right? Yep. Like offensive rebounding rate, mm-hmm. turnover rate, free throw rate, and, and effective field goal percentage. Like, so you, you need to be good at three of the four. Yeah. Um, and it's to hard to most, be good at all four. Because it's almost impossible to be good at to, all four by by nature. If you're exactly good at right. Three of them, you're giving up one. If of you're them. good at offensive rebounding, you're probably are you not going to be a good transition. shooting team. Yeah. Or are you going to be a good? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you, you start to add all that stuff in. Um. So for me, the, if I had to pick one, to be effective field goal percentage, and that's the when you weight the value of the three point shot and what teams shoot, which I think we're currently through two games seventh in the country, yeah, or close to. Um. So like that would two be games. the that would but be. you know that two I games, mean, but yeah. you know that's 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 why people have been impressed for two games, but with the offense exactly
0: statistically it's been a lot of that
1: shot selection too yeah. you know it's like are we taking good shots um you know are we getting the right guys' shots like those those things are questions that you they kind of evolve but i would say that would be the first one all right all right man. look it's, i told you i think a
0: half hour it's been an hour now so um i appreciate the time uh obviously you guys got a couple games this week um big road tests coming up next week um big trip in brooklyn coming up uh do you look I won't say look ahead, but I mean, are you already looking at any games down the road? Is there not anything not you're excited term. about this
1: season? Um, not long term. Like just uh, right now, I like focus on Green Bay. Just from a, from a scouting perspective, okay. I have to get a little bit ahead. So, like day of the game, I'll, yeah. I'll start to
0: sneak, look at the sneak next peek
1: look. some. Yeah. You know, I'll look at some McNeese on on Wednesday morning, okay. and usually cut that off about two o'clock. Uh, but um, so I'll look ahead a little bit to the next opponent, but in all honesty there's not like it's you have to just keep the next the next challenge like because it can like, i i think it can overwhelm you if you start to, sure. to think too far down but you um, looking forward to not having to do minivans
0: Hopefully you, guys you never tickets. know, man. You, you guys never guys have plane
1: tickets to most games. We I mean, you have playing tickets to most games, like Well, uh, I guess you know, maybe not next week. You'll the, be driving down to the, El Paso. The, 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 the hotels will be, be, be a little, little bit nicer, bit. but um you guys probably not flying down to, to Utep in New Mexico no, State. So. We'll, we'll be on the bus some, but no, I'm definitely looking forward to the, what lies ahead. But but for the most part it's just like it, it's just next next challenge. Enjoying which being is back in Green Bay. Love it. Love it. It's appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man.
0: All right. Well, there you go. There's my conversation with Craig Snow, the special assistant to the head coach of the Lobo basketball team. Certainly appreciate Craig giving me so much time. Um, An hour will not be the length of most of these podcasts. Most of them will be more along the lines of the 20 to 30 minute range. I know you don't have the time to to listen to me ramble on for an hour um, every week. And uh, when... When a guy like Craig's giving me an hour of his time, um, that is what I want to bring to you guys and share with you guys. That's the, the those are the conversations and some of the behind the scenes stuff that obviously isn't all going to fit into the print edition of the Albuquerque Journal. It's certainly not going to um, fit into the the online abqjournal.com/slash/sports edition. where it's just not really the format that that um, fits long conversations like this. So. The podcast, that's what I want to bring to you. Some of those conversations, even when they're an hour long. Again, most of these will be much shorter, though. I do appreciate you listening, and I appreciate all the feedback you've been giving me on social media. I'm always interacting on Twitter, at Jeff Grammer, if you haven't already followed me there. But uh, the emails I got last week, the feedback for the Jaquan Lyle and the Carlton Brad um podcast from a week ago. Much appreciated. I got a lot of positive stuff. I'm going to keep this podcast going. You guys are obviously listening. I saw the numbers from last week and the numbers are good. So we're going to keep this going. Let me know what you think. Give me some show suggestions, some podcast suggestions. You can uh, let me know what you think. Let my bosses know what, what you think as well. Let them know that uh, you do appreciate this podcast and the content we're trying to bring you on mobile Basketball Coverage. So, again, keep up with our coverage, abqjournal.com sports is where you can find us online. The print edition still uh, still keeps the lights on for us, so go buy a paper every now and then. Newspapers are important, not just because of sports and entertainment stuff, but uh, in a lot of ways, newspapers are important, and I hope you, hope you agree with that, and I hope you support local newspapers everywhere. So, again, this has been episode 21 of the Talking Grammar podcast. Another edition probably in about a week. I'm going to try and keep these every week, so... Hopefully within a week, we'll have another edition up and however you listen, hope you come back and listen to some other ones. Thanks for your time.